If you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to turn to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you can stand with me, I would love for you to stand with me as I read verses 20 down through 28. This next little section here that Paul is going to describe for us, really the resurrection of ourselves someday. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Let's pray. God, I thank you this morning as we study again in your word that we find the vast scope from eternity past to eternity future has all been laid out it's been planned it has a purpose there's an end there's a reason there's a goal Father I'm thankful that we as, as your children have a small part in that we too will get to participate in this grand scheme, this, this story of redemption. So Father, help us to grasp this this morning, to have an appreciation for it. And Father, that we would just rejoice in the fact that you've loved us and you've cared for us. You sent your son to die for us. Help me now as I explain this text that we would apply it to our lives faithfully. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're one for reading children's books or I like to say watching chick flicks, if you know what I mean by that, watching watching these sappy movies, uh, right? Um, There's one basic plot line that you'll find throughout most of those good stories and most of those kinds of movies. It's something like this. Uh, Everything's going right in, in somebody's life then something bad happens, there's some kind of a conflict, there, there's a fight that kind of goes on between a good and evil, it looks like the bad guys are going to win, um, and then in the end, good just sort of miraculously triumphs, and you have this happy ending where they live happily ever after, right? The first uh, date that I took my wife on, we went and watched the movie Lion King, exact same plot. Uh, everything's going fine in this young lion's life. Then his dad gets killed. 
Uh, there's this conflict between him and his uncle. It looks like his uncle's going to win. And then in the end, miraculously, the young lion comes back and he triumphs and he marries the lioness of his dreams and life goes on happily ever after. Now, did you ever stop and think about why that kind of a plot line is so appealing to us? I would venture to say this. That plot line is built into the very fabric of mankind because it's the plot line of the Bible. If you think about it like this, everything was going right for Adam and Eve, right? And then there's conflict. Satan comes along and he he deceives them. And so they sin and they fall. And from that point forward, there's this conflict between righteousness and evil. And it looks like evil's going to win. Because at the cross of Calvary, Satan kills Jesus. Looks like it's over. Looks like it's done. And then miraculously, Jesus raises from the dead, good triumphs. And at the end of the Bible, we find in the book of Revelation that what? All of the redeemed live happily ever after. It's the plot line in the Bible. I think that's why whenever you watch a movie and there's not closure at the end, or you read a book and the bad guys win, there's just something within you that just doesn't set right. It just doesn't feel right. It just That's not how it's supposed to happen. And I think it's because we know the end of the story of the Bible. It's just kind of built into us. What I want to look at this morning as we go through just these few verses in 1 Corinthians 15, is I want to show you how, in the end, good wins. God is victorious. And you and I, as part of that story, get to live happily ever after in the Son, Jesus Christ. I'm not sure I'll be able to do justice to the weight of this. Because if you really take this idea of God's utter power of his total sovereignty of his absolute glory it's really more than our little minds can kind of wrap itself around but we're going to try just a little bit uh, to see this picture this morning that Paul lays out for us here in, in 1 Corinthians 15 I think there are three steps that Paul gives us three sequential steps necessary for us to experience what I'm calling the happily ever after, our time in heaven. There's three of these. Number one, Jesus has to resurrect. And we'll look at what Paul has to say about that. Jesus has to resurrect. Number two, believers have to resurrect. You and I bodily have to resurrect, and we'll, we'll look at that. And then thirdly, in order for there to be this culmination, this, this finality, if you will, to time, God has to bring everything back under his control. Satan has to be defeated. Evil has to be defeated. Death has to be defeated. And everything must come back under the subjection of God. So there's three steps. Jesus has to resurrect. Believers have to resurrect. And then God ultimately restores all things to how it used to be. So we're going to look at those together in in, in sequence, all right? So the number one, first step. Jesus has to resurrect from the dead. Most of you, many of you, have been here as we've been studying through this chapter 15. And as we've looked through this, Paul's kind of laid out his case in a very logical format on why Jesus is raised from the dead. And in verses 3 down to verse 11, he's, he's demonstrated through eyewitnesses, through Scripture, 
through the power of God's word that Jesus is very much alive. And he says there in those verses that over 500 people have seen Jesus after he resurrected. They've touched him. They've watched him eat. They, they've grabbed hold of his feet. They've been around him. Paul was one of those guys. And he lays this out and he says, all of these people have seen Jesus. He's very much alive. And then verses 12 through 19, he says, if, if Jesus isn't alive, if it's true that Jesus didn't raise from the dead, as some in the Corinthian church may have believed, then he says you have all these negative consequences. Your faith is in vain. Uh, The loved ones that have passed on ahead of you uh, have perished. He says you're still in your sins. All these negative things that have taken place if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. And so he gets to verse 20 where we pick up this morning and he says in a conclusive kind of very emphatic way, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In Paul's mind, there is no waffling on this issue. There is no, yeah, it is a a fundamental truth of Christianity upon which our salvation hinges. Jesus had to raise from the dead in order to conquer sin and death. So to Paul, it's, 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 it's dead on. There, there's nothing else to be concluded. Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead. And in order to have a happily ever after, Jesus has to raise from the dead. That's step number one. Now, I want you to notice, though, what he says in verse 20. He says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the first fruits, first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. I don't know if you're familiar with what first fruits are, Um, But in in Paul's time and in the Old Testament time especially, when they would plant their crops, for those of you that are farmers here, when they would plant their crops, they would plant them in a progressive kind of way. In order to hedge against weather, they would plant some crops now. They would wait a little while, then they would plant some more. They would wait a little while, plant some more, so that if they didn't have any rain for a while, maybe some of the crops would do well, maybe some of them wouldn't do as well. But they were protected a little bit from the elements if they planted in a progressive kind of way. Well, when those first crops began to grow, the children of Israel were to take the first bit. They were called first fruits. And they were to take them at the Passover and present them at the temple. It was a a way, an act of faith saying, God, I could keep this first crop for myself, but I'm not. I'm going to trust you that the crop I'm bringing to you is a guarantee or a promise of what's to follow. This is the first fruits of everything else that's to come along behind. And so they would come at the Passover and they would present these first fruits. They weren't even allowed to harvest the rest of the crop until they first brought the first fruits into the temple. So first fruits are a guarantee of what's to follow, what's to come. So here's, here's the question. Well, Paul, if you say that Jesus is the first fruits, then who's supposed to follow? Jesus was first. He was what was presented at the temple. Who's supposed to come after him? Well, it's every person who ever believed in Jesus Christ. It's you and I. We're the rest of the crop. 
He was the first fruits, were the rest of the crops. Look at verses 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. So you have two guys here. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now I want you to see what Paul's doing here. He's setting up these parallels. I want you to see this. He's saying, by a man came death. Who was that man? That man was Adam, right? Adam in the garden sinned, and because of him came death. All who follow after Adam die. Now, who does that include? That includes every human who's ever descended from Adam. Does that include you and I? Of course it does, right? We all follow in the lineage of Adam. So how many people will die? Everybody. They're all going to die, right? Why? Because we're Adam's descendants. Through one man came death. But there's another man who came after Adam. And you'll see here in verse 22, it says, So also in Christ all should be made alive. Here's the parallel. Paul says, One man, Adam, sinned, brought death. One man, Jesus, raised and brought life. Everyone who follows Adam dies. Everyone who follows Christ lives. You see the parallel that he's setting up here? Jesus was the first fruits. Everyone else is going to come after him. Adam dies, brings death to all of his descendants. Jesus resurrects and brings resurrection to all of his descendants. Do you see that? That's the parallel that he's setting up here. Death was the inevitable result of one man's sin. Life is the inevitable result of one man's resurrection. You can't have one without the other. So Paul here says, in Adam, you die. In Christ, you resurrect. Now one side note here. I want to point this out real quickly. Verse 22. Some people take verse 22 and they twist it uh, to mean that everyone without exception will be alive in Jesus Christ. We call this universalism. It means uh, universalism says that no one will stay in hell forever, um, but eventually everyone will be purified and make it into heaven. Uh, And they base that partly on verse 22 because it says, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Do you see that there? Universalism is a blasphemous belief, and it's not at all Paul's intent here. And I want to show you why. Verse 22, when it's used in that way, uh, the word all is the word that's stressed. Listen as I read this verse. I'm going to stress the word all. Watch this. Verse 22. For as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, when I stress the word all there, it sounds like, well, listen. In Adam, everybody died. That includes all of the human race, right? So in Jesus Christ, all of the human race must resurrect. That's universalism. But that's stressing the wrong word. The word that Paul stresses here is the word in. And I want you to look at this and again in verse 22. and read it again. I want to stress the words differently. Watch this. For as in Adam all die, so also... 
in Christ shall all be made alive. Here's what I want you to get. How many humans are in Adam? All of them, right? All of them. How many humans are in Christ? Well, it's only those who believe in him. Okay? So we can say it like this. The first all in that sentence includes everybody. We're all in Adam because we all have a common factor of sin. But only those who are in Christ and have a common factor of faith are the ones who will resurrect someday. It's a technicality, but I think it's important that we understand that. So verse 23 kind of confirms what we're talking about. Verse 23 says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And there we see, it's those who are in Christ. So what are we saying, Sean? Let's, let's, what, let's summarize this a little bit. What I'm saying is this. Christ is the firstfruits. That's the first step. And who are those who are going to resurrect with Christ? It's all those who have believed in him. It's all those who have trusted in him. It's all those who have recognized that the Lord is my savior, that the Lord is my master. That's what we're saying here. It begins with the recognition that we're all sinners. We're all in Adam. The penalty for sin is death. And those who don't repent, those who don't follow Jesus Christ, find themselves eventually in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place called hell, a most terrible, awful, horrible place to live. In order to escape that judgment, you must have faith in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. So we throw all of our trust on Jesus Christ. We couldn't do that which Jesus Christ did. It frightens me sometimes uh, when people think that in some way um, they can earn part of their salvation. We see it all around us. Uh, People that they can uh, feel like they can somehow partly save themselves either by dressing right or by keeping certain rules or by participating in a correct number of masses or, or paying penance that in some way I can earn part of my salvation. And Jesus says, you can't earn any of it. The only way you have salvation, Jesus says, is by trusting in me. And it's when we belong to Christ that you and I will follow the first fruits and you and I will resurrect from the dead someday. Verse 23 says, each one in his own order. Christ comes first, he's the first fruits, and then after that come all who believe in Jesus Christ. When he says there, each one in his own order, you might ask the question, well, what exactly is that order? I get asked a lot. When when the end time comes, what exactly is the order uh, that we're going to resurrect from the dead? I don't want to be too dogmatic on this because there there are valid, different valid explanations on what's going to happen someday when you and I resurrect from the dead. But let me just say it like this. What I think the Bible supports. The Bible says that when you and I die, our bodies will go out there in the graveyard. Our soul will depart and be with God in heaven immediately. Uh, our bodies go in the ground, um, but our souls don't go to sleep out there with our body. I'll give you a couple of verses to think about. Paul says this. He said, I would rather be away from the body and where? 
at home with the Lord. Paul also says, it's my desire to depart and be with Christ. There's no such thing as soul sleep. I know some people are are scared to death to die because they're afraid that they'll lay out there in the ground for a thousand years um, before Jesus comes. That wasn't what Paul believed. Paul said when he died, he would immediately be in the presence of, of Jesus. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me. Where? In paradise. And so our bodies go out there in the ground, they'll decompose, um, but our souls go into heaven. And someday there'll be this thing called a rapture in which the graves will open up and our bodies will come out of the graves much like Jesus's, a, a new body, a glorified body, and meet up with our soul as Jesus comes down in this rapture and they'll reunite our body and our soul and together then we'll be with Jesus forever and ever. That's, that's the timing. Now we don't know exactly how that's all going to play out because somewhere in there there's a tribulation Somewhere in there, Revelation talks about a thousand-year reign. Somewhere in there, Satan's released and kind of a final rebellion against Jesus Christ. We don't know how all of that's going to happen. But what do we know for sure? Well, we know for sure that the end is going to come and Jesus will be the victor. That we know for sure. It's the final step in the happily ever after. Jesus has resurrected. We will resurrect. And the final step is that Jesus will restore everything to its perfect beginning. Look at verse 24 again. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When Jesus comes back to earth, he will rule on earth until every power, every evil, every authority is under his feet. Now, when the Bible talks about under his feet, what it's talking about is this. Back in the day, when conquerors would go and they would attack and conquer other countries, they would bring back the people and the armies of those other countries and they would parade them through their hometown. It was kind of a a picture a victory, if you will. And the last part of that triumphal march back through the hometown is the victorious king would have the conquered king bow down before him as an act of homage. And when he would bow down, he would place his head all the way on his ground at the feet of the conquering king. And the conquering king would take his foot and place it on the neck of the conquered one. And it was a symbol of saying, I am now in charge. This man has been conquered. He is under my feet. He is under my authority. And so when Paul talks about that in the end, all things will come under the feet of Jesus, what he's talking about is that Jesus will take his foot and place it on every authority and every rule, including who? Satan, right? He'll crush Satan beneath his feet. He'll hold him under his feet. I think that's a cool picture because it shows this one who, in this grand story, Satan, who thinks he's winning, who thought he won at the cross and realized he was defeated. So he's determined now to take as many people with him to hell as he can. And yet it's a picture in the end, try as he might, Jesus Christ, step on his neck and crush him. No power, no rule, no authority 
will ever defeat Jesus Christ. And the final enemy, according to verse 26, is death. How do you defeat death? We defeat death by reversing its effects. You defeat death by giving life to all those who died. And so when our bodies as believers resurrect from the dead, the bodies that Satan thought died, that there was the penalty for sin, when Jesus resurrects those and they have life, death now has no power because we've risen to life and will live forever. We're reversing the effect of death. And so death, the last enemy, is gone. Is gone. There's a verse in Revelation 21 and it says this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That day will be a marvelous day. I don't know how many of you this morning are here and you have pain in your body. That irreversible, unrelenting kind of pain. One day, when all things are set straight, Jesus has resurrected, believers have resurrected, and Jesus has conquered every rule and every authority and every power. On that day, there will be no more pain. Some of you have experienced tremendous pain, it'll all be gone. On that day, I don't know how many of you in here this morning mourn and cry uh, over maybe broken relationships, children that refuse uh, to come under your authority, best friends that have turned their backs on you. And you mourn over that, you cry over that. One day, because Jesus has resurrected, you have resurrected and all authority has come under Jesus Christ, there will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying. I don't know how many of you in here this morning wipe away tears, maybe secretly, because of a spouse's anger toward you. Or maybe just a spouse's indifference toward you. They just don't care about you anymore. Or how many in in here have ever wept and cried um, because you so desperately wanted to be a parent. And for some reason, God didn't answer that prayer. Because Jesus has resurrected, and one day you will resurrect, and one day every authority and rule and power will be under the authority of Jesus Christ. On that day, there will be no more weeping. No more crying. No more tears. It will be a wonderful day. And on that day, here's what's going to happen. On that day, Jesus is going to have accomplished all the things. He was the first fruits. He went first. He brought all of us behind him. He brought all the rule under his authority. And he's going to take this kingdom that he's built, this majestic God-honoring, loving kingdom, and he's going to take it and he's going to turn around and he's going to hand it to God. 
In Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But on this day, Jesus is going to take all of that authority that he's been given and all that he's accomplished and all of this kingdom, he's going to turn around and as the final love offering to his father, he's going to say, here it is. It's finished. It's perfect. It's exactly how you started it. You and I, friends, are that kingdom. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, then there's no way he could hand the kingdom back to God. And if you and I didn't raise from the dead, there'd be no kingdom to hand back to God. All of these things must happen in order for the end to come and for God then to be all in all. God designed it. It was a perfect story. Man ruined it. Jesus restored it. And he hands it all back to God the Father. And God then becomes the all in all. Friend, if you want to be part of that story, if you want to be part of the happily ever after, the ones who rejoice in heaven, then you must trust in Jesus Christ. You must believe in him. You must put all of your faith in him because he's the only one that can save you. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, just like this basic plot line of every good story we like to read, we look forward to the day when there's a happily ever after. Because this world is broken. This world is messed up. Father, we have shootings. We have illness. We have death. We have broken relationships. We have anger. We've got all kinds of mess going on in this earth. And so we look forward to the day when all will be set right, when all will be brought back under the perfect authority and rule of Jesus Christ. We want to be part of that day. And so by faith, we believe in your son, Jesus Christ. By faith, we trust that he did that which we could never do. Father, we love you. I look forward to the day that I walk the streets of heaven, no longer tempted to sin, finding others also not tempted to sin. And together we join hands as we circle the throne and we sing, God, you are the all in all. Our bodies will be perfect, feel no more pain, no more tears. And Father, forever we'll worship you. And when 10,000 years have passed, it will seem as though time has just begun. Father, I pray that we would live now in light of what our future holds. That we would choose to look past all of the bad things that happen here. Not in a naive way. We recognize that those are very real. But that we would look past those and say, I look forward to the day when all is right. And today, today, I will live in light of the promise that's to come. 
Father, give us joyful hearts as Christians. Help us to be some of the most happy and kind and gracious people because you have been so kind and gracious to us. Help us to have a cheerful disposition toward people because we look forward to a day when cheer and joy is the only thing that we'll ever know. Father, give us a burden for people who don't know you. We don't want to see people suffer in hell. We don't want to see people go to a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so give us a boldness and give us a courage to talk to folks and to explain to them the hope that they can have in Jesus Christ. Thank you. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.